Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we continue our series on the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Today, which is uh, Lesson 6, and we're in John, John chapter 1 again, verses 19 to uh, 34. Now, so uh, one of the things that... Uh, I remember, I think, from two weeks ago when we were having our discussion about the idea of witnessing or sharing the gospel with people that don't quite think like we do, or people who don't have the same appreciation or background that we do, the challenge that that sometimes presents. And I think that one of, the, one of the things, I think, Jackie, it was you that had mentioned this, that when you were witnessing to that friend of yours about, about the gospel, and then that friend or that person you were talking to made some comment about America. Am, am I recalling this right? Or am I just imagining that you said this and the, the look that you had on your face tells me it wasn't you. Okay. Well, what, here's, what, here's where I went with that. Let's pretend that you said it, okay? <laughs> I've been gone, maybe I've been gone a month and I didn't even know this, right? It's very possible. But here's what, here's what occurred to me, is one of the challenges sometimes to sharing the gospel with other people is what do you do in the moment that you're talking with that person? What do you do if that person hits a hot button for you? What do you do? See, see, hot buttons are, that's just what uh, I describe a hot button as something that is near and dear to me, which either that other person doesn't even know it's a hot button, but they say something that that person says, or an assumption that person makes. And what it does is there's a, there's like this trigger moment. And in that moment, you feel your stress level goes up like that, Right. And it could be anything. It can be, it, it, some of it is unique to your own experience, your own values, whatever it is that's near and dear to you, right? And, and you're certainly entitled. We're all entitled to have those things that are near and dear to us. But what happens when somebody says something that aggravates that or pushes that button that you have? It's really tough to keep from going into reaction mode and either shooting back at them in some way that's like, you know, insulting them or whatever, or just simply saying, that's it, I'm done with you, I'm gone, which is also its own sort of reaction. And so that, that occurred to me kind of out of that question, whoever it was in here that asked that, right? But I think that that's one of the things that's important for us to give some thought to because what we're gonna see in our lesson for this morning Notice the nice little segue here, right? Is that the potential of that happening to John was also quite great. And so as we think, as we, as we think about that, as we read through, let's see if, uh, if we can make that connection. Okay, first part here. And this is the testimony of John. Now that's John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. 
are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Okay. Does it make sense that there would have been some official inquiry going on in terms of who John was, John the Baptist, who he was, and what he was really about at this point in time and where he's doing. Why would there have been some official inquiry about that? Well, for one, he just came in from the wilderness and he was kind of gruddy. Yes, and actually the fact that he was also drawing huge crowds of people, we assume huge, at least enough to where it would get the attention of the religious leaders of the day to say, hey, who is this and what he is about? Now, so to sort of get some sense of that, we kind of backtrack a little bit. John comes out of the wilderness in the same way that the prophets of old would have done that. And in fact, that was kind of seen as the way that prophets were prepared for the ministry that they would have to do. The ministry being going and telling the people that they had to get it together because God was seeing them head off into, uh, into idolatry. And so uh, very often then the prophet would be the one saying, thus says the Lord. Well, the way that prophets themselves were trained and in some sense hardened for that work is that they would spend time in the wilderness, basically learning that they're not in control of life. Anybody ever had an experience like that? What you think in terms of how easy it is for us to think in terms of, well, I can control this, I'm in charge of that, I, I speak and people listen, you know, those kinds of things. And then it, something will happen in your life, and through the experience of going through that, you discover that you're really not all that in charge like you think you are, Right? That's a wilderness experience, maybe would be a way of saying that. But in, in, in John's day, and certainly in the Old Testament days, the wilderness experience was a real wilderness, right? You're off by yourself. You're having to fend for yourself. And in fending for yourself, you're learning that ultimately you have to trust in God. Yeah, Carl. Now, when we hear the word wilderness, we think of forest, right? We think of forest. Forest, you know, lots of forest and trees. Oh, yeah, yeah. The wilderness out there near the Jordan? Yes. Nothing. It's Nothing. Empty. 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 Yes, empty. And any of you that have spent ever any time out there in an extended kind of way and you weren't in your camper, okay, <laughs> the loneliness of those places gets to you. It gets to you. It is kind of interesting that very often when Jesus sought uh, refuge from his ministry and from people and maybe just from his disciples, where did he go? Yeah, and the Bible says that he went off to a lonely place, a, a place of solitude, a place where, you know, if somebody followed him into the wilderness, boy, they were like really dumb because it's like who would want to go there? Nobody desires to go to the wilderness, at least for an extended period of time. When, when Jesus, after he was baptized and prior to his ministry starting, wh where did he go? 
I haven't been gone that long. Come on. Where did he go? What, what, what happened to Jesus after his baptism and just prior to he started to call his disciples? Something happened. 40 days and 40 nights where? In the wilderness. He was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. And he comes back from the wilderness and now he's ready. So see, there was a, there was a pattern, a training pattern, if you will, you want to call it that, from, for, for prophets. And so now we look at, we look at John the Baptist. Where, where has he been living up to this point? In the wilderness. Yes, he looks scraggly because he's wearing what? He's wearing fur and he's eating what? Yes, fried locusts. He's been eating that. And of course, that's what you eat when you're in the wilderness. By the way, have you ever had fried bugs? That's a bit of a delicacy now. Yeah, I think you can get them at Central Market. I'm not sure about that, but we should try that sometime in here. Just have a little dish and we can hand, a peop- hand it out. Okay, all right. So, so the other historical part here is how long has it been since Israel experienced the presence of somebody who was acting an awful lot like one of the prophets? 400 years. See, for 400 years, there's been no prophet. Malachi was the last prophet. And then for 400 years, you have just this nothing in terms of somebody coming in, thus saith the Lord. So the people would have noticed that now you get somebody who's coming in just like the prophets of old. And the message that he gave and the manner in which he did it was he didn't give a rip about anybody's feelings. He was not a feeler in that sense. He says, thus says the Lord, here's what the Lord says, I'm telling you, and I don't care how that affects me, I don't care how that affects you, but I hope that what it does is turns you back to God. It was a, it was a message and a, and a baptism of repentance. It was not a softy sort of, oh, come, and we'll talk about your feelings today. That was not John the Baptist, all right? And so that, that doesn't get lost on the, the religious establishment. And so what we're told is the Jews sent priests and Levites, all right? So priests are the clergy, Levites are the, are the lay leaders, right? They're going to come out, and they're going to ask, who are you? Now, it's interesting that Jesus ran into the same sort of inquiry, right? And we can read that in Matthew 16. Now, when, the, when Jesus came into the district, district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? See, everybody had an opinion. Well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, part of the interesting aspect of this for me is that there were certain expectations that were being made of John, given the fact that when he emerged from the wilderness, people remembered or at least knew who he was, or they would have known who his father was. So who was John's father? Zechariah. And Zechariah was what? What was his profession? He was a priest. So here we have the first PK ever, right? <laughs> All right. So we have a PK. So just kind of a little question there, you know, because the expectation in those days was that you would be whatever your father was, right? 
So if your father's a priest, well, you know, you're going to go to school and become a what? A priest, yeah. Uh, Jesus ran into that a little bit. His father was a what? Carpenter. And what happened in Jesus's ministry was that he started saying things that people didn't want to hear. And they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Ought not he stay in the carpenter shop and stop talking to us like this? I mean, those expectations that people often bring to the table can get in the way of the very thing that you're wanting to do or you feel called by God to do. So let's just talk a little bit about this. So what kind of expectations do you think people would have had in those days toward PKs, priest kids? You think people would have had expectations of priest kids? Other than that, they'll follow their father's footsteps. Behavior, like what, Steve? Oh, they're going to follow all the rules and be polite. All the things that the priest would be preaching, they have to live it. Yeah, so the, the, that would be the expectation, right? Is, and in fact, for some people, the credibility of the priest's message would be judged on the basis of how their kids behaved. Yeah. Um, what about preacher's kids? We can go preacher's kids. We can go priest's kids. Any, not probably much of a difference there. Okay, what do you think in terms of people today, expectations people have today? How many of you are preacher's kids? Oh, good. I'm going to walk over here to this side of the room. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, we'll have some coffee later and discuss this. Yeah. Okay, do people today have expectations of preacher's kids? And, and we're not talking about whether it's fair or not, because we all know it's not, right? Okay, but uh, expectations? Preacher's kids should know better. Preacher's kids should know better because... They have been taught the right way. That's right, because they only spend all their time reading the Bible, and they know... <laughs> yeah, that is correct. That's, this is true. This is very true. Yeah, yeah, Doris. I don't know what people think of preacher's kids today, but I do know that any time I left the house, the instructions from my father were, Yes. he didn't care if I was safe or not, he didn't <laughs> care if I came home or not, but it was, don't do anything to embarrass us. There you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and I <Yeah>. did. <laughs> As much as we're dying to know what that was, I think we'll just reserve that for whoever you wanted to say that to. Yes. All right. Okay. What else? Expectations. Expectations. Yeah. Richard. I'm kind of wondering because after some of the things that Jesus said to the priest, I'm wondering what everyday people were thinking. In other words, did they have the same low regard? For the priest kids that they did for the priest, you know, did they think that they were hypocrites? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. He's asking if if people would have had the same level of regard for the kids as they would for the priest himself. Yeah, yeah. could be. Yeah. In my experience, and I'm a PK too. So, I, in fact, I'm a third generation PK. So, so my both my grandfathers were pastors, um, Lutheran pastors, and then my dad was. Lutheran pastor, and then, you know, 
you, know, you can sort of get the theme here, right? Yeah, yeah. It, um, and I just simply refer to that as Lutheran predestination, okay? Because, <laughs> because, you know, when you grow up around it and you're just always in it and then you don't really know anything different from it, it's kind of hard to imagine that you would be doing anything else other than that. Although my dream of what I really wanted to do when I was in high school and I was, had kind of been thinking about how would I do this, is I really wanted to be an architect. Yeah, and then I found out you have to know math. And then <laughs> I thought, what am I gonna do now? I'm terrible at math. And so I looked around for a, a profession where you don't have to take college math. And lo and behold, to become a pastor, you don't have to take college math. <laughs> So I guess it's kind of worked out. I've been doing this for a long time uh, and, and really do enjoy what I'm doing. So you know, there's, there, there is an experience sometimes when you are a PK that you can feel the burden of that, that somehow that how you do what you do is a reflection on the validity or the, the uh, uh, whatever, the veracity of your parents' profession. And that because sometimes what's involved in that is good behavior in church and or being at least moral in the, uh, in the community uh, and the idea that people are watching. We often talk about the fishbowl as being an experience that you have as a PK. But it's also probably true for most people whose parents are high profile. So anybody who's in the public square their kid is being watched and to some degree uh, judged. And whether that's fair or not, um, it's, uh, it's simply the reality. Um, I think what saved me in some sense, and you, and you know this about me, is that I have a high level of irreverence. <laughs> and I think that that was part of my survival in terms of growing up in, uh, in church world and being able to take Jesus seriously, but that's about it. Because if, if you take that part, the other part of it regarding, you know, the way churches are and politics and people and all those kinds of things, if you take that too seriously, it'll, it'll kind of uh, run you into uh, cynicism. And I would never want to go into cynicism. But by taking Jesus seriously, and, and everything else kind of irreverently, right, then, uh, then that's part of, uh, part of how I kept myself in a balanced place. Okay? All right, so, yes, Keith. We also have to remember the context that's going on where you had the Romans basically took over Israel. Yes, Romans are occupiers, yes. occupiers, and the Hebrews, they were the only country that Romans took over where the priests had some type of standing. Yes. Which means they probably worked hard to get their little apple cart and their little thing. And they That's right. And somebody come in here knocking off their little good thing they've got. That's right. And so there was always this threat that Jesus was going to disrupt things in a, in a, a political way, even though Jesus was uh, from a spiritual way. But because the spiritual and the political were intertwined, there was not this sort of separation of church and state the way that we think of it that way. So because of that, there was always this fear that those who were at the top in terms of what they had achieved in their status and, and their, their power, that they would lose that. And so this was, a, you know, this was kind of a struggle for them in terms of what do we do with this. So anyway, they go to John. And they say, who are you? And notice John's response. John, John talks in terms of who he is and who he is not. 
And he knew that very clearly and articulated that very well in terms of saying to them, here's what the boundary is. Here's who I am and what I'm about, but here's also who I am not. And who I am not is just as important as who I am. So he says, I am not the Christ. Now, again, the word the Christ, the the phrase or the term the Christ had messianic implications. So whoever it was that would say, I am the Christ or he is the Christ, because the expectations were that the Christ would do certain things politically, then he was very careful to say, I'm not the Christ. Even when Jesus came himself, he very rarely referred to himself as the Christ. Because by saying that, that would automatically put in people's minds, oh, great, you are the Christ. You are the the one who's going to bring Israel back to its political glory. And that would have set in motion all kinds of of, uh, problems. So that, see, the Jewish belief, uh, about halfway down the page, the Jewish belief regarding the, the Christ or the Messiah was, was that it would be preceded by the return of the prophet Elijah, who would be then preparing the people to receive him. And we pick that up in Malachi 4, 5. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So you see, that's why they're asking, are you the Elijah? Are you the one that is the forerunner of the Messiah? What would happen then, the belief was, was that Elijah would determine the worthiness of those who would receive the benefits of the Messiah's kingdom. But notice what the benefits are. They're not spiritual, right? There might be some spirituality in there, but that wasn't the main thing. It would be prosperity, it would be power, and it would be a righteous standing with God. See, that was the expectation that was already built in. And to some degree, you can kind of see where that would have come from. For 400 years, nobody's talking to him in terms of God's word. Thus says the Lord. Okay? So for 400 years, what have they received a steady diet of? The stories. That part, but I'm talking about in terms of their religious instruction and their, their at, at home when they, when they talk about the glory days of Israel. What are, what are they hearing? They're hearing all these stories about how, how the, we, we left Egypt and we went across the wilderness and we got to the promised land and we fought the Canaanites and we took over that and David came and Solomon came and how wonderful and great those days were. And now what do we have? Now we have to, we can't hardly walk across the street without a Roman soldier stopping us and asking for papers, Right? And so you can see where they would be yearning for the good old days that way, right? And that yearning would have shaped their expectations in such a way that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for them to see the true essence of the Messiah when he finally came. Does that make sense? Yeah. So expectations is a, is a big chunk of sometimes expectations get in the way of the very thing that God wants to do in our lives, the very thing that, that God is placing before us, the opportunities that are there, if our expectations are so rigid and are so sort of boxed in, this is the only way it can be, we miss, we just don't see it, right? And sometimes God goes to great measures 
to reshape or just crack us in the head. I don't know which one it is. Yeah. Are we kind of going backwards now? It used to be, you know, that we always heard, heard the good about God. And everybody, like, say, in the United States was a Christian. It's going backwards. It feels that way, doesn't it? And I think that's part of the challenge for us today. Christianity, or maybe just church, is not held in as high esteem as it used to be. Well, we all grew up when it used to be. And we got used to that. And I think that one of the assumptions we made is, is that this is the way it's always going to be. And now we need to check our assumptions at the door. And we almost have to retool ourselves a little bit in terms of, and that's kind of what we're doing in our classes to figure out, okay, what is, what does retooling look like? We're not retooling the message because the message is the gospel. The message is, is, is everything, Right. But the manner in which we do it perhaps might have to be tweaked just a little bit because the assumptions that we made about how it was going to be in the world are not necessarily true anymore. Okay? So what do they do? They say, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. So, you know, to some degree, I don't think at this point that they are trolling John. I don't think that they're looking for a way to trap him. I think they're just saying, who are you? We see the effect and the impact that you're having on the people around us. It is a bit disturbing to us because everybody's talking about it, right? But I think in some sense, they're just trying to figure out what he is about. Now, one of the things that was true in Jesus's day was that very often the expectations people had about his ministry uh, became a challenge for him to continually define who he was and what his ministry was about. And it wasn't just his enemies that were doing that. So on second page, uh, number one, the zealots, for example, they had expectations of a Messiah too. They wanted a Messiah that would lead the army to overthrow uh, the Romans. And there is some suggestion there that perhaps uh, Judas himself was, uh, was a zealot, or at least he was, he was buying into the ideology of a zealot. We'd sort of get that sense from that. Um, the Pharisees, they, they had a, a, an interest as well. Their interest was they wanted a, a Messiah who would keep the law of God perfectly and would influence others to do the same. Now, can you think of an example in Jesus's ministry when he ran into that expectation uh, from the Pharisees that, they, that, and they would say, well, you're just not keeping the law perfectly. Can you think of an example of that? Yes, yeah, Stephen. Uh, healing someone on Sunday. Yes. Well, it wouldn't have been Sunday, actually. It would have been the Sabbath. If it had been Sunday, nobody would have cared, you know, actually. But on the Sabbath, right? Because the, the edict was, the third commandment was, you shall, you know, keep it holy. Don't do anything, you know, that would constitute work. And then they had uh, come up with like 400 laws that would say this is what consists of work and what doesn't consist of work. Yeah, okay, what else? Other examples. The healing on the Sabbath, though, was a big one. Yeah, Brenda. Eating grains from the fields. Yes, remember that? They're walking through the fields. And this was kind of interesting. They, they would have a path through the field, and some of the wheat uh, would grow over the path. You know how you just kind of walk along, like if you had a picket fence, you go blah, 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 like this, okay? It would be the same thing with the grain. And it wouldn't even be like they went into the, into the, into the grain field. It was just the stuff hanging over 
and you grab onto it like you do and you uh, pop it in your, uh, or blow off the chaff and then pop it in your mouth, that constituted work, right? And so you, you get the sense here that the Pharisees were acting like the religious police, right? Kind of walking around making sure, but now you understand why. Because their belief was, was that if the law can be obeyed perfectly, then not only was that person righteous and worthy to, to be part of the kingdom, but then uh, if enough people were doing that, that would usher in the messianic age, and then the, the Messiah would come as they wanted him to. What about the disciples? Did they have expectations about Jesus' uh, ministry? What were some of their expectations? And again, remember, they're products of their culture. They're products of their own religious upbringing. So what, what do you think would have been their expectation? Yeah. Pardon? Power. And what indication do you get in the scriptures that that was the case? Remember? Remember that story? Oh, yeah, yeah. On the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Yeah. Hey, let's just build some shelters up here and then we can do that. All right. But what I'm thinking of another one. Remember with James and John, their mother comes. Remember that story? Yeah. One at your left and one at your right, you know, and the other 10 figure, oh, gee, we, we wish we would have gotten our mother to go to you and talk to you. All right. So, so, uh, so there's all these expectations. And what Jesus does throughout his three-year ministry is he spends a lot of time showing them and teaching them this is what the kingdom is about. And this is not what the kingdom is about. Do you think people today are still a little confused about that? Yeah. And so part of our role in the church, I think, as Christians, is to, to not be afraid of or surprised by the fact that we have to continually articulate who we are and who we're not. And that's harder to do more and more, partly because we're kind of products of our culture. We're products of our society. We're products of our upbringing. Uh-oh. 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 I was waiting for this. Okay. I think it's your batteries. It's my batteries. It's your batteries. <laughs> batteries. I saw it. I didn't want to interrupt. I was waiting for them to get to I'm sorry. Sorry for the delay, y'all. We love you. <laughs> you have a new one, Jeff. And we will never let you forget this ever. <laughs> <laughs> or at least I won't. Let's see if that's working. Is that working? Can you hear that? Yes. Let's give Philip a hand. Very nice. Very nice. He's so polite, and your politeness is really what caused the sin in the first place. So... <laughs> That was great. Thank you so much. Okay, I don't even remember what I was saying, so I, I guess it doesn't really matter. But notice, again, what he says, and he quotes the scripture. He says it, it, from uh, uh, Isaiah 40, verse 3, he says, I am a voice that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So, so John does recognize that he's the forerunner, Okay. But what he's not going to do is get caught up in all of the political aspect of that or, or this some idea that, that if I say I'm a, the Elijah, and, and uh, the, the Elijah in some sense is, a, is, a, uh, is an archetype of the one that would come, right? 
So, so yes, he is the, the Elijah, but he's not going to say I'm the Elijah because if he does, that sets in motion, oh, okay, then we know the Elijah's coming and we know the Messianic age is coming and now we can get our forces together and now we can prepare to march on Rome. He's not about to do that. Okay, let's go to verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now notice, they're not surprised nor are they offended that he's baptizing. The act of baptizing was common in those days, okay? Almost every prophet that would come along or, or everybody that claimed to have the word of the Lord would come along would engage in baptizing, okay? So baptizing was part of the uh, proselytizing. It was part of the evangelizing, if you will, of the day. And they're not surprised by that. What they are offended by is that John is calling good Jews to repentance, and good Jews are being baptized or being encouraged to be baptized. Now, why would that be offensive to them? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Do what? That they did a bad job. They... Treat the people that are questioning him. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that part. That they would be sort of... Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. So they could, they could have had some... Uh, like feeling like this is a statement of that we didn't do a good job. And so now, so I hadn't even thought about that possibility. The other, po- the other possibility that I, kind of the one I was thinking about was, was that from the Jewish perspective, you're already what? Chosen. Remember that? They got, a, they got that message sent to them very clearly all through the Old Testament. You're the chosen people. You're the chosen, chosen people of God. If I'm already chosen or my relatives were chosen and I was born into the chosen family, why do I need salvation? Why do I need repentance? Why do I need faith? Why do I need anything? It's already, my, it's already mine by my, birthright, by my birthright, okay? My mouth isn't catching up to my brain much today. So you see, that's what's offensive to them. And that's what they're questioning here. So he just says, you know, then why are you baptizing? It, 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 it doesn't make any sense to us. And so then that's when John says, well, I do baptize you with water, but the one who's greater than me is coming. And he mentions this, uh, this, this task of unstrapping sandals. And he says, I'm not even worthy to do that for him. So what's the significance of unstrapping a sandal? That was a task that was so menial that there was no way any disciple would ever have been asked or mandated to do. Well, then who would have done that? The slaves. And it wouldn't be just any slave. It would be a woman slave. Because in those days, there was a hierarchy even among slaves. And the hierarchy was that the female slave was the lowest of the low. And then the male slave was above that. And so there were certain things that were relegated to certain genders simply because it was on the basis of gender. Okay? I don't guess that would go over 
so well today, nor should it, all right? Nor should it. Okay. So he, he's just articulating that he's saying about himself is that I'm not even worthy to do that which is required of a female slave. Great humility there in John. Now, why was it important for John to be really clear about who he was and who he wasn't and what his role was and what it wasn't? Why is it so critical to do that? And then moving that into why is it so critical for you and me to be very clear and very secure in what our role is in, in terms of evangelizing as well as what our role isn't. Why does it matter? Yeah, Sydney. I think, I, I don't think I know, John did not want people to begin to worship him and think he was. Oh. And it's the same for people. You don't want to be the person who has the answers. You don't want them to look at you. Because sometimes we can elevate, like we do in our society. Yeah. There are certain pastors that yeah. sort of get elevated and then they kind of have a downfall because we're all sinners. Yeah. Every single one of us. So yeah. I'm not better than you. I'm not smarter than you. We are equal. We are the same. Yeah. So, okay, so do you hear what she said? Yeah, kind of, okay, all right. So it, so it raises a question in my, in my mind. Is there a place for ego in promoting the gospel of Jesus with others? Is there a place of ego? I mean, is there a place for it? You have to feel comfortable with it, that's for sure. You kind of have to be a bit secure in who you are, because if you're not, you're going to find it very attractive to let other people define who you are. The, the, kind of the way that that would play itself out is, how many of you find that you enjoy it when other people like you? <laughs> I'm going to raise my hand boldly here. Okay, everybody else is kind of embarrassingly doing this, okay? Yeah, all right, so is that wrong to want people to like you? No. Is it precarious? In what way? You would be susceptible to peer pressure, would you not? If the group says, hey, let's go egg somebody's car, you know, and you wanted to be liked by that group, and you feared the idea that you would be rejected by that group, right? You would say, well, I don't know about that. Oh, I don't have any eggs. Oh, here we have six dozen, you know? I mean, you know, it all, you, you come up with all these excuses why you don't want to do it, but you don't want to admit that you don't want to do it, because why? Because if you do, then they'll say, oh, goody, goody, Mr. PK, we're not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, then that's happened, actually. So, you know, <laughs> now you know, now you know. All right, so, okay, yeah, so, Patty, thoughts? I was just going to say, you tend to lose who you are. Yes. When you take on the identity of your peers. That's right. You get shaped by their expectation and, to some degree, their acceptance. You live for that acceptance, okay? So having some what's called ego strength, which is basically that you know who you are and you're, 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 you, maybe it's not the funnest thing there is to do, but you're able to say no 
And if you, if you don't have enough of that ego strength, then you're very susceptible to that. But the dangers of it is that you can go too far and then say, well, I don't care about what anybody thinks. I'm just going to do my own thing. And you know what? If you don't like it, you can lump it or you can go uh, fly a kite, right? And that's the other extreme, isn't it? The other extreme is not so great either because then you're not having a way to connect to people. So finding that, that sort of sweet spot, that, that balance is really key when you're involved in doing a gospel work. Yeah. Well, I was going to just talk about myself in that uh, very vulnerable to being squeezed into the world's mold and being a people pleaser instead of a God pleaser. Sure. Because he has a purpose for us, Mm -hmm. and um, that's a very serious uh, point to decide. Yes, absolutely. So, you see, it's this issue, Dan, of if... If I, where do I find my security and where do I find my strength? If I, if I don't feel like I have it in me, then where am I going to turn to for it? I turn to the Lord. I turn to God, see? Because he's the one that at the end of the day says, I love you no matter if nobody else does, right? You're, you belong to me. You're my beloved, even if everybody else rejects you. And the reason why it's important for us to to maybe just constantly remind ourselves of that and remind each other of that is because when it comes to sharing the good news with people that Jesus loves them and Jesus wants to, 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 to uh, call them to be his own, not everybody wants to hear that. And when you are rejected or the message is rejected that you just gave, if you're putting too much of your sense of who you are into being accepted and loved and or at least not rejected by others, what's going to happen when somebody says, then you can't be my friend anymore? Or when somebody says, if you want to play on our baseball team, you have to be here for practice on Sunday morning. And you say no. Or you say as the parent to the coach, no. And then your kid is unhappy because he doesn't get to play in the game on Monday. See, what, where are you going to find that sense of, I hate this that this happened, but it doesn't crush me. It doesn't kill me. But it does make me aware that sometimes that distinction is made. Yeah, Lisa. I think that there's a difference between ego and confidence. Okay, we can use that term. Because ego and confidence yeah, is what she's saying. Ego has more of a negative connotation, and that's where your feelings would get hurt. Yes. Whereas with confidence, um, when someone says, well, then I'm not going to be your friend if you don't come on Sunday morning, then, then when it's confidence, you're able to say, okay, that's fine. Yeah. So. Although I would say my feelings will still get hurt. How many of you will admit that? That when somebody says no, or they say you can't come to the party, or you're not my friend, that that would hurt your feelings. Okay, that will hurt my feelings. So please, do not say that, okay? (laughs) Just know that that will hurt my feelings. All right, but the issue is, does it hurt my feelings, or does it crush me? That's the difference. Yes, it will hurt your feelings. It will. But that's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but you know what I'm saying. It, you're not going to die from it. 
And if you have, so that's why I use the word ego strength versus kind of ego, okay? Because we think of ego as being prideful and all that. But ego strength is just that sense of secure in yourself in terms of who you are. And you're not going to let someone's rejection define who you are. I would say that's a learning process. I'm probably a little better at it now at age 65 than I was at 15. At 15, I was really sensitive to it and did not want to be known as Jim Adi, the PK. I wanted to be known as Jim Adi. Okay? So real sensitive to it when I was younger. I'm just less sensitive to it to now. Right? So I've kind of learned. I really don't care what you think. <laughs> it took me, what, 55 years to finally get to that point, right? Somewhat. Yeah, somebody else had their hand up. Oh, yeah, Carl. I find it interesting, you know, the longest line. Yeah. John the Baptist, you asked about, did you have to have pride or what was in it? Yeah, he, yeah, ego. But bottom line was, he was just sharing the truth. But what was really interesting is he could have been standing in the wilderness all alone. Yeah. He wasn't. Right. Think of that. It's the people who are coming to hear him yes. sharing the truth. That's right. So there was value. They found value in what he was saying. That's a great point. That's an awesome point. I love that because he, he spoke with an authentic voice. And, it, and that often was said about him. We'll see that later in the Gospels about John was that that's what Jesus admired about him, too. But it cost him, didn't it? Because he, when he went to Herod and he was talking to Herod about, uh, you know, incest and adultery, uh, Herod said, well, <laughs> I'll fix you, throw you in prison, and then eventually I'll just, you know, sever your lips from your uh, from your body in the form of beheading you. I mean, you know, does it cost us? Is there a cost involved when you speak the truth? Absolutely. And maybe that's a little bit of what's hard today too, is that the idea of truth is not as well respected as it used to be. Used to be you could talk about absolute truth. Now you can talk about it and you're going to get pushback. What do you mean there's absolute truth? What do you mean by that? How, there, how can that be? So, again, it's being mindful of the way that society and the culture has changed and, and to be able to keep the message the same, but to be courageous and perhaps innovative in the way that we go about doing it. Maybe a little different today. Okay, well, guess what? As usual, we didn't quite get done. I know, I love this, just kind of going all over the, all over the map. So we'll pick it up next week uh, at, at verse 29, okay? And then uh, uh, we'll go from there. Are we having a good time? Yeah, I think we're having a good time. All right, let's close a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the way that your word speaks to us with such power. And it's a word that we never have to worry is devoid of power. Lord, sometimes we get a little confused about who the messenger is and who the message is. And then sometimes when we face uh, pushback or ridicule or persecution or just indifference from, from people with whom we share the word, uh, sometimes that confusion really kicks in. We think we're getting rejected. We think we're getting abandoned when, in fact, it's just our job to share the message and the Holy Spirit's job to work the faith. So uh, keep us mindful of that, Lord, as we uh, go our separate ways uh, this week. 
uh, be with those who are listening to our podcast this week, that, that they also can be comforted by that. And at the end of the day, we know that uh, your word is truth and your word is the real thing. And that trust in you each day, knowing that we're loved, we're forgiven, and we have a place in eternity with you. Watch over this week. Keep us uh, safe, especially tomorrow uh, being Memorial Day. And uh, keep us mindful of, of all those who have paid uh, a huge price for our freedom and the joys that we can share today. Uh, watch over us until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.